Welcome to the History Unplugged podcast, the unscripted show that celebrates unsung heroes, myth busts historical lies, and rediscovers the forgotten stories that changed our world. I'm your host, Scott Rank. What do you think of when you hear the word slavery? To most people, especially Americans, you would imagine a slave taken from their homeland in Africa on a slave raid, sold to a merchant, and then cross the Atlantic in a packed slave ship where many people died. Then they arrive in the United States, are sold to a plantation owner on a slave market, and have to pick cotton in the antebellum South. You might also think of the psychological dehumanization process where they're made to feel less than human, and this is shown in recent films like 12 Years a Slave, where a person's humanity is stripped away step by step. But if you were to ask that same question to, let's say, an English person in 1700, what is a slave, they would have a different answer. They might think of a fellow countryman, a white countryman, who'd been seized on ships by Barbary pirates from North Africa and then transported to Algeria and committed to a life of heavy labor, or maybe they were ransomed off. This Englishman might think about the 1631 sack of Baltimore, in which there was a slave raid by pirates in Ireland. On the morning of June 20th, some 230 men armed with muskets landed in Baltimore. They quickly and silently spread out, and at a given signal, they broke open doors, torched buildings, and launched a simultaneous attack on the sleeping inhabitants of the town. All in all, the pirates took 20 men, 33 women, and 54 children and youths to their ships. From there, the victims were taken to a port in Algiers in North Africa and sold off or ransomed. And it wasn't just Ireland, of course. For about three centuries, Barbary pirates enslaved the English, the French, Americans, and even Scandinavian and Icelander captives. An estimated 20,000 British and Irish were held as slaves in North Africa from 1600 to 1750. But if you go back 200 years earlier and ask a person, what is a slave? The image is even still different. Slavery in the Christian Mediterranean, from Italy to Spain, was identified with the Slavs, many of them from Eastern Europe, Russia, and Central Asia, who'd been purchased by Italian merchants and were sold in Christian and Muslim markets. David Brian Davis, a historian of slavery, notes that the Western European words for slave stem from the Latin for Slav, sclavus. In fact, when Africans started to enter these slave markets in the 1490s, a notary would have referred to them as a black Slav. And he would have noted this because black slaves were starting to increasingly fill the settlements in Portugal, the sugar-producing Atlantic islands, and the Americas. So the idea of what slavery is changes over time. But something very interesting is that in the early 1800s in America, the idea that most people had about slavery, or at least many Americans, wasn't that of an African that filled the plantations. Their idea of what a slave was, was a white ship captain and a best-selling author by the name of James Riley. James Riley was the white captain of the merchant ship Commerce. In 1815, his ship, which was sailing out of Middletown, Connecticut, was going from Gibraltar to the Cape Verde Islands. The ship got lost in fog and wrecked on the West Moroccan coast. He and his 12 crewmen were enslaved. The very brief version of his story is this. He and his crewmen had to march overland for hundreds of miles in brutal conditions. After months, they reached a port, they paid a ransom, they were set free. Riley and some of the other men were able to get back to America, and then he published his memoirs. 
which was one of the biggest bestsellers and most widely read books in American history, and a groundbreaking book on how people understood slavery, and a groundbreaking book on how Americans understood slavery, even though many Americans, especially those in the South, had been surrounded by it in the form of Africans who worked on plantations for their entire lives. Let me tell you a bit more about Riley and why his story is significant in early America. When Riley and his 12 crewmen were shipwrecked off the Moroccan coast, this wasn't as big of a disaster as what would happen next over the next two and a half months. They were running out of food and water, and Riley and the surviving crew had to throw themselves at the mercy of some passing Berber tribesmen, who were also part of the slave economy of North Africa. These tribesmen enslaved them and carried them off into the desert. They became chattel to be bartered for blankets, guns, or animals. They were abused by their masters or their families, and they were malnourished and sent from one sand-filled location to another. Only seven of the men survived and were able to be ransomed and returned to civilization. The rest vanished without a trace or died in the desert. They had to trek for 800 miles to finally reach William Wilshire, the British consul general who arranged their release. When James Riley published his memoirs and described his physical hardships, it shocked the readers. The men were forced to drink not only their own urine, but that of camels to stay alive. And the men noted that they preferred the camel's urine to their own. They were only fed after their captors' dogs were fed, and the crew had to survive on snails, the entrails of slaughtered animals, or even grasshoppers. During one terrible stretch through the desert, where there was practically no food for both the men and their Arab, what they called owners, some of the men ate the skin off their peeling arms and gnawed at their own flesh. Riley had to tie one man's arms behind his back in order not to consume himself out of madness. But as the men ventured on, some of them saw it not as their doom, but as a spiritual test that they were being given to. They thought that it was God's will that they were suffering and they had to make the most out of their situation. For this reason, the story of the shipwreck was included in countless anthologies of religious books in the 1800s because they followed a conventional religious admiration for resignation to the will of God. This was a standard theme of shipwreck stories, kind of like that of Jonah, where people who reach safety are those who trust in God, throw themselves on his mercy, and maintain their faith no matter what happens. Now, there were a few bright spots in this story. A bond formed between Riley and a Muslim trader named Sidi Hamet, and it formed despite their very different cultures. A mutual respect developed between the two, and it even developed to the point that Sidi Hamet, a merchant, risked his own life to protect the men of the commerce. The captors were nearly dead when their Berber slave masters sold them to an Arab trader, the Sidi Hamet, and he bought the Americans on Riley's promise of ransom if they got returned to the coast, which they did receive. The rest of the journey that the survivors endure is over mountains, and it's less brutal than through the desert, and how they attain their freedom. Now, their entire plight only lasted about two months total, and only the first three weeks were spent as slaves of the Berbers, the worst portion of their journey. But the story became, in Riley's book, as an epic tale of survival against human and natural odds. The story was simple, but it resembled a lot of contemporary American captivity accounts where settlers fall into the hands of American Indians. It resembled Dante's Divine Comedy, where a pilgrim starts at the lowest point, then ascends upward and upward and encounters the purification that God intends for them. In this episode, I'm going to be answering a question from listener James Richter. 
He asked me this, I'd love to see you do a show on Captain James Riley. His cargo ship, the Commerce, was shipwrecked off the coast of Africa, and his crewmen became slaves to nomadic tribes. His survival story was written in his narrative and was a bestseller in the United States. His book was read by the young Abraham Lincoln when he was a boy and formed his opinions about slavery. So in this episode, I'll mention a little bit about the story of James Richter, but I want to get into the much larger issue of slavery throughout the centuries and how we often understand slavery purely in the American context. And some people think slavery in America was unique. It was uniquely savage and uniquely barbaric. But others say this was merely just another chapter in the ongoing story of slavery that has really only diminished in the modern age, and it still exists in many other unofficial forms. But the mere fact that it is looked down upon is unique in human history. Well, I'll get back to the bigger themes of what I'm going to get into in this episode and other episodes to come. But first, let me wrap up the tale of James Riley. That Captain Riley and his story are well-known in America before the Civil War is undeniable. As late as 1835, whenever Riley turned up in Washington, people would cluster around him, and he could speak to packed-out audiences. He continued to receive fan mail from people up until his death. His son remarked in 1851, 11 years after Riley died, No private citizen of this country whose name has been altogether unattended by any official station to give him consequence in the opinion of the world, has made himself so extensively or so favorably known as has Captain Riley. In the 19th century, over a million people are estimated to have read Riley's narrative. Libraries clamored for copies of his book. There were only about 50 or 60,000 printed, but each copy was passed around multiple times. Library patrons waited for months for a chance to read his book. At the Farmers and Mechanics Library in Washington County, New York, about one-third, perhaps as many as 40%, of its members borrowed his book between 1817 and 1830. Abraham Lincoln read the book in 1817, and by his own admission, he said that the sections on the men's treatment influenced the future president's views on slavery. Other famous people supported the book, such as James Fenimore Cooper and Henry David Thoreau. You can see the influence of this book in the names of American places. Riley named a town he founded in western Ohio in 1822, Wilshire, honoring the British consul who set him free. In 1820, one South Carolinian christened his son, C.D. Hamet, for Riley's master and protector in the Sahara, naming his son after a Muslim. In western New York in 1824, the Butterfield family named a child Consul Wilshire. And after this book's American debut, it was followed by a British edition, then a French translation, then a German version, and the book was reprinted no less than 18 times by 1860. Its title was Narrative of the Loss of the American Brig Commerce, Wrecked on the West Coast of Africa in the month of August 1815, with an account of the sufferings of the surviving officer and crew who were enslaved by the wandering Arabs of the Great African Desert, or Zahara. And the memoir was recently reprinted in 2007 with the more modern title, Sufferings in Africa, The Incredible True Story of a Shipwreck, Enslavement, and Survival on the Sahara. Now, why was this book so popular? And why did it form people's opinions of slavery even more than the flesh-and-blood slaves what they saw with their own eyes in antebellum America? 
The book is considered by some as canonical in the anti-slavery literature, along with Uncle Tom's Cabin. What the book did was show the dehumanizing effects of slavery. Now, this wasn't the first account of a Christian enslaved by pirates or Muslim corsairs, but it was nearly the last book of its kind to be set in North Africa. What the book did was show Americans that when anyone was put into the brutal conditions of slavery, whether white or black, anyone's humanity could be stripped away and they'd be reduced to eating their own skin whenever they were pushed to the utter levels of desperation. And it made many Americans, such as Lincoln, ask themselves, were we the Berber slave traders of Riley's account? Were we the villains in the stories told from the perspective of Africans? To many abolitionists and politicians, the answer was yes. Riley himself made a clear call for abolition at the end of his book. And here's what he says. This is a somewhat lengthy passage, but I think it's worth quoting at length. He said, I have drank deep of the bitter cup of sufferings and woe, have been dragged down to the lowest depths of human degradation and wretchedness, my naked frame exposed without shelter to the scorching skies and chilling night winds of the desert, enduring the most excruciating torments and groaning, a wretched slave, under the stripes inflicted by the hands of barbarous monsters, bearing indeed the human form, but unfeeling, merciless, and malignant as demons. Yet when near expiring with my various and inexpressible sufferings, and black despair had seized on my departing soul, amid the agonies of the most cruel of all deaths, I cried to the Omnipotent for mercy, and the outstretched hand of Providence snatched me from the jaws of destruction. Unerring wisdom and goodness has since restored me to the comforts of civilized life, to the bosom of my family, and to the blessings of my native land, whose political and moral institutions are in themselves the very best of any that prevail in the civilized portions of the globe, and ensure to her citizens the greatest share of personal liberty, protection, and happiness. And yet, strange as it must appear to the philanthropist, my proud-spirited and free countrymen still hold a million of the human species in the most cruel bonds of slavery, who are kept at hard labor and smarting under the savage lash of inhuman mercenary drivers, and in many instances, enduring besides the miseries of hunger, thirst, imprisonment, cold, nakedness, and even tortures. This is no picture of the imagination. For the honor of human nature, I wish its likeness were indeed nowhere to be found. But I myself have witnessed such scenes in different parts of my own country, and the bare recollection now chills my blood with horror. Adversity has taught me some noble lessons. I have now learned to look with compassion on my enslaved and oppressed fellow creatures. My future life shall be devoted to their cause. I will exert all my remaining faculties to redeem the enslaved and to shiver in pieces the rod of oppression. And I trust I shall be aided in that holy work by every good and every pious, free, and high-minded citizen in the community, and by the friends of mankind throughout the civilized world. The present situation of the slaves in our country ought to attract an uncommon degree of commiseration, and might be essentially ameliorated without endangering the public safety, or even causing the least injury to individual interest. I am far from being of opinion that they should all be emancipated immediately, and at once. I am aware that such a measure would not only prove ruinous to great numbers of my fellow citizens, who are at present slaveholders and to whom this species of property descended as an inheritance, 
but it would also turn loose upon the face of a free and happy country, a race of men incapable of exercising the necessary occupations of civilized life, in such a manner as to ensure to themselves an honest and comfortable subsistence, yet it is my earnest desire that such a plan should be devised, found on the firm basis and the eternal principle of justice and humanity, and developed and enforced by the general government, as will gradually, but not less effectually, wither and extirpate the accursed tree of slavery that has been suffered to take such deep root in our otherwise highly favored soil. So as you can see in that passage, Riley is not completely an abolitionist. He calls down scorn on slavery, but he doesn't call for immediate emancipation. So this is a first edition of the book that I read, but in modern editions, that last paragraph was removed, the carefully worded passage that deliberately qualifies his anti-slavery message by expressing his respect for private property and his doubts about the fitness of African Americans for freedom. His brand of anti-slavery in the 1830s favored colonization, not abolitionism, to basically shut down the slave trade and have a sunset clause on the institution of slavery in America. And again, it's a bit contradictory that for many Northerners, at least, their best understanding of slavery came from the writings of a white American and his personal experiences. But I said earlier, the understanding that someone would have about slavery depended on the time and place they lived. Today, we think about the Annabellum South. In 1815 New York, they might think about a white merchant captain who was shipwrecked off the coast of Africa. In 1700s England, they might think about Europeans kidnapped by Barbary pirates. Going back further in the Ottoman Empire, with slavery, you might think of the black eunuchs or the women of the harem. In Roman times, when you think of a slave, you would think of the Greek who is captured, who is teaching your son how to read and write in Greek. In the next few episodes of this podcast, I'm going to be looking at the institution of slavery as it existed throughout history and ask the question on whether we can arrive at a universal definition of slavery. Are there common points that can connect it from the ancient world up to the Middle Ages and then up to the antebellum South and even in the 21st century with things like human trafficking and sex slavery and forms of bonded labor and indentured servitude? Or was the nature of slavery completely unique in different periods in history? Was there something about chattel slavery in America that was categorically different and categorically worse than slavery in the ancient world or the Roman Empire? In this episode, we're going to look at the origins of slavery and how it was practiced in the ancient world, and accounts from Stoic philosophers like Epictetus, who were enslaved and how they dealt with it. Then we'll jump up to slavery in the Middle Ages and the pre-Atlantic slave trade, where African slaves weren't sent west to the New World, but they were actually sent east to the Middle East. After that, we'll look at Tripoli pirates and the practice of capturing Christian slaves in the Mediterranean. Then we'll move on to the Atlantic economy and the slave trade from Africa to the New World. Finally, we'll look at how it came crashing down and abolition and how slavery lingers on into the 21st century. Now, first, let's look at the question on whether there was something uniquely bad about chattel slavery in the antebellum South in America in the 1800s. This is a very difficult question and something that historians and sociologists have wrestled with in the 20th century. In the 1960s, many historians equated the origins of New World slavery with racism. 
And they saw racism's influence on the relations between blacks and whites from the very beginning of their contact with one another. As the Age of Discovery pushed Europeans out of Europe and increased contact with Africa, so increased racism. Yes, there had been slavery in other societies, even in Africa itself, but some of these historians described slavery in Africa as extended kinship networks, while the chattel slavery of the New World was completely different, where a slave was completely dehumanized, became nothing more than property, and their humanity was stripped away. This thesis was challenged by sociologist Orlando Patterson in the 1980s with his book Slavery and Social Death, a Comparative Study. He argued that race wasn't the original justification for slavery. It was more incidental, whereas Europe expanded its trade routes and it set up plantations in the New World to harvest sugar and required an immense amount of manpower. Africa was sitting there with its pre-existent slave markets. It was a convenient place to tap into. And it was the most convenient place to ship slaves from and bring people into the new world. What Patterson did was analyze slavery in 66 different cultures, ranging in historical time from ancient Mesopotamia to the antebellum South. And he tried to offer, as best he could, a universal definition of slavery. He argued that in all societies, slaves were socially dead. It meant that a slave was always an outsider in some sense, a person without honor, isolated from family networks and kinship networks and civic responsibility that's deemed honorable. Because even if a slave had these things, it was only at the discretion of the master. And so the slave was a non-person. The slave was an extension of the master's will. But still others would say that there was something uniquely bad about the antebellum slavery in the New World. They practiced chattel slavery because slaves were the personal property of their owner and were bought and sold as commodities. The slave status was imposed on them at birth. This is different from an institution like bonded labor or indentured servitude, where a person pledges himself or herself against a loan. A person can repay this at some point and they can get out of slavery. They're not categorically assigned a slave status just by their race. Bonded labor, you could see the example of serfs in the Middle Ages. They have an agreement with their lord that they must stay and work the land and provide it to their lord but they have a tremendous amount of freedom. Serfs were able to take the day off. They could rest during holy days. Some historians think that they worked few hours than we do today, and they enjoyed a life of relative comfort. Maybe they couldn't travel, but in the Middle Ages, almost nobody traveled except for merchants and a few aristocrats. So as you can see, there are a lot of difficult questions and contradictions that come out with slavery. And one of the central contradictions comes from the history of slavery in the United States, Where on the one hand, this is a nation founded on the principle of the equality of all men. On the other hand, slavery reaches its apogee in this nation. This contradiction was explored by the historian David Brian Davis in his magisterial book, The Problem of Slavery in Western Culture. It was a three-volume edition, and the first was published in 1966. Davis served in the military immediately after World War II in Germany, and he noticed the contradiction that He served with African-Americans who, when they were crossing the Atlantic into Europe, had to sleep below decks, and he noted that their quarters were terrible and it felt like a slave ship. And when they arrived in Germany, many of the German women were happy to cavort with American GIs, whether they were white or black. And he thought, these are German women who, just a few years ago, were absolutely instilled with Aryan ideology and Nazi ideology of the supremacy of the Aryan race, and are perfectly happy to fraternize with black men. But in America, 
which promises the constitutional equality of all men, still had institutionalized separation between the races. Anyway, here's what Davis noted with the historical problem of slavery and its meaning in the United States. The contradiction is that early American values prized liberty but perpetuated slavery. American society rested on the contradiction between celebrating freedom and denying freedom. The contradiction reflected the difference between ideal and reality. Also, slavery grew dramatically during the 18th century in order for land to be cultivated, for cotton and sugarcane and other cash crops to be farmed, crops that were very labor-intensive. They grew during the 18th century at the time of the Enlightenment, where narratives of progress and enlightenment incorporate antiquity and start to criticize the backwardness of slavery. But slavery becomes more vicious at this time. It was once considered a mild and domestic institution, and now it became a harsh and depraved global phenomena. Intellectuals are starting to speak out more harshly against it as it grows and becomes nastier. So if history was progressive, America retrogressed. And there's one last big question here about slavery. If it is so universal across human history, why did it die out? Given the fact that slavery evoked almost no moral protest in countless societies and cultures for thousands of years, how do we explain the emergence of a new moral idea in the mid to late 18th century that slavery was not only a problem, but immoral? Well, these are big questions, so I figure the best way to dive into this is to look at the facts of slavery as best as possible to see what is similar from antiquity up into the modern era, but also to see what changes over time. And when it comes to slavery, how much of it is driven by ideology in different cultures? How much of it is driven by economics? And how do these two factors meet together? So with that in mind, let's jump back into ancient history and look at the origins of slavery. Slavery dates back to prehistoric times. Some of the earliest records we have that mention slavery, tax codes or legal codes that mention slaves, are so matter-of-fact about it that it seems to be just an assumed feature of life. Why would you even question it? In similar ways to the history of prostitution that we looked at a few episodes ago in this podcast, those are also found in some of the oldest written records we have and also appears to be an assumed feature of life. Some anthropologists think that slavery was modeled on the domestication of animals that happens in the Neolithic Revolution about 10,000 years ago with the dawn of agriculture. And you see slavery in the first civilizations and the most advanced civilizations in the Fertile Crescent. Slavery appears in the civilizations along the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in Mesopotamia, the Nile in Egypt, the Indus Valley of India, in China, and the earliest known system of laws, the Hammurabi Code, recognized slavery. Slavery appears to begin with civilization because for hunter-gatherers, slaves would have been an unaffordable luxury. There wouldn't have been enough food to go around in a subsistence agricultural situation, and you don't have a lot of social stratification between the highest and lowest members of society. And there's not much difference between a chief and a child in a small tribal unit of 20 to 30 people, let us say. Slavery wouldn't have made a lot of sense. But with the growth of cultivation, those defeated in warfare could be taken as slaves. A male could be a laborer, and so could a female, along with becoming a concubine. But even when slavery starts to appear in early civilizations, the percentage of slaves was small. 
partly because male war captives were typically killed. You don't have the sophisticated forms of chattel slavery like you do in the United States. And slavery might have been a universal institution, but relatively few societies turned wholeheartedly to slavery as the dominant form of social and labor organization. One of the great theorists of slavery in the ancient world, Moses Finley, says that only a few societies became slave societies, where they depend on slavery as one of the main forms of labor. These include ancient Greece and Rome, along with the tropical societies of the early modern and 19th century Americas and West Indies. Finley says that slavery was seldom adopted by elites. They tended to exploit internal or domestic labor sources if they could. That's because the cost of acquiring and maintaining slaves were very high, and even more importantly, the risks involved of having to control rebellious slaves were too great for most societies to have to deal with. Now, slavery was not only a social condition, it was not only a result of warfare, it was also a state of mind. Greek philosophers like Aristophanes and Aristotle thought of slavery as a status that affected how one thought of oneself, if one was a slave, and how others thought of slaves. To be a slave was to experience helplessness and degradation and utter exploitation because you lived in the contradiction where you were a piece of property owned by another person, but you were still yet a person yourself with independent reasoning. Now, this contradiction leads to really interesting philosophical implications where in Roman society, you have slaves who are freed like Epictetus who write really profound treatises on what does it mean to be a free man when you are not yet free? And how do you assert control in your own life when you legally have no rights? I'll get to that a little bit later when I get into ancient Greece and the Roman Empire. First, let's go through the ancient world and see what slavery looked like. Slavery goes back to the oldest story ever written, the Sumerian Epic of Gilgamesh. It's a 4,000-year-old tale of gods, kings, love, and slavery. Here's one passage. It says, He is king. He does whatever he wants takes the son from his father and crushes him, takes the girl from her mother and uses her, the warrior's daughter, the young man's bride. He uses her. No one dares to oppose him. What's interesting is that even in this ancient tale, people cry out against slavery. Heavenly Father, Gilgamesh, noble as he is, splendid as he is, has exceeded all bounds. The people suffer from his tyranny. The people cry out, Father, do something quickly before the people overwhelm heaven with their heart-rending cries. So we don't know what these enslaved sons and daughters were forced to do, but we know that they suffer. Slavery was part of life in Mesopotamia, in Sumer, and then Akkad, and then later Assyria in the north and Babylonia in the south. These kingdoms were powerful, and the great works that they built were typically on the backs of slaves. The Sumerian kings brought home more and more foreign captives to work in their palace workshops, and even as soldiers in their armies. The long lists of male and female war captives survive on Sumerian clay tablets. Eventually, Sumer and Akkad gave way to Assyria and Babylonia. Like others before them, they went to war often, and when they did, they brought back captives, and soon they had huge slave workforces. The Assyrian king Ashurnasirpal II advertised his brutality on large carved tablets. After one expedition, he bragged he was returning from war with 460 horses, 2,000 cattle, 5,000 sheep, the sister of the defeated ruler, and the daughters of the ruler's rich nobles, as well as 15,000 other people. 
These captives built the Assyrian city of Nimrud with its five-mile wall, palace, botanical gardens, and zoo. The more talented slaves didn't work as laborers. They were musicians, domestic servants, temple library workers, sailors, and soldiers for the spring military campaigns, charioteers, or horsemen. Slaves even worked as scholars. In order to feed this economy, many slave markets dotted the Mediterranean Sea and the Persian Gulf by the end of the Assyrian Empire to meet this market demand. It isn't as though people were docile. Babylonian accounts talk of slave uprisings and runaway slaves and owners who did whatever they could to hold on to their property. They made slaves wear clay or metal tablets on chains or burn names or symbols into the flesh of their slaves. And because of these issues, you see slavery mentioned frequently in the Code of Hammurabi. What the law did was at least recognize some rights of slaves. For example, one says, If a physician heals the broken bone or diseased soft part of a man, the patient shall pay the physician five shekels in money. If he is a slave, his owner shall pay the physician two shekels. Laws like these limited the owner's power over his slave. He couldn't kill a rebellious slave. All he could do was cut off his ear. However, you could look at this as less humane treatment of slaves, but understanding the value of slave labor to society. If too many capricious slave owners were killing their slaves, then you can't get a lot of nice Babylonian public works built. However, helping a slave to escape or protecting a runaway slave was punishable by death. This is seen as Hammurabi protecting the property rights of slave owners. Now, Egypt had an incredible amount of slaves in the ancient world, no question. In the Old Kingdom, a form of forced labor was practiced where the pharaoh owned all the land, so every person who farmed it was his tenant. When the pharaoh's tenants weren't needed on farms, they had to work on construction projects in exchange for food and clothing. These were the workers who built the pyramids. However, most of the people who built the pyramids weren't slaves. They could own their own homes, and nobody could sell them, and many were skilled workers. But over time, the line between free and forced work became more sharply drawn. A laborer who tried to escape his forced work could be punished with enslavement, along with his whole family. One document describes this order. Order issued by the Great Prison in year 31, third month of the summer season, day 5, that he be condemned with all his family to labor for life on state land according to the decision of the court. Now, Egypt, like the other empires around it, obtained a lot of slaves through conquest. With each victory, soldiers brought home foreign captives to become slaves. One warrior said, I have brought back in great number those that my sword has spared, their hands tied behind their backs before my horses, and their wives and children in tens of thousands, and their livestock in hundreds of thousands. I have imprisoned their leaders and fortresses bearing my name, and I have added to them chief archers and tribal chiefs, branded and enslaved, tattooed with my name, and their wives and children have been treated in the same way. Now, war and conquest and capture wasn't the only way that Egyptians got slaves. For many people, they voluntarily entered slavery because they were in debt. Slaves could also be bought at slave markets from nomadic traders who led caravans across the desert. Now, when I'm talking about ancient Egypt and slavery, for many of you, you're probably thinking of ancient Israel. Because the Exodus narrative of the Israelites fleeing Israel is one of the best-known ancient narratives of slavery. There are some interesting concepts that come out of slavery in the ancient Jewish people. 
There are themes that find their way into Christianity and Islam. The idea of progress, and also the idea that there's a divide between the current world and the world to come, and the religion will rectify this. David Bryan Davis wrote about this in his article, Slavery and the Idea of Progress. That, in a sense, the Judeo-Christian tradition begins with a great myth of slavery and human progress, the mosaic account of Hebrew slaves being delivered from Egyptian bondage that go to the exodus of the promised land, and they transfer their ultimate allegiance from Egyptian slave masters to a supreme god, to Yahweh, and their struggle to preserve their freedom and their historic mission by faithful observance of God's law and remembrance of their former slavery. If they keep God's law, they'll keep their independence. If they disobey God's law, they'll return to slavery. And it's not necessarily that there were latent seeds of abolitionism within the ancient Judeo-Christian tradition, but the religious culture understood the tension between the people's aspirations and the historical experience. The Judeo-Christian tradition had anti-slavery potential, And Jews and Christians tried to prevent the enslavement of their brethren, and there's a lot of things in Jewish law that make it harder to enslave a fellow Jew than it does a foreigner. And there were attempts by Jews and Christians to ransom their brethren. And the early church also condemned the enslavement of Christians. But on the other hand, the monotheistic religions proved to be completely compatible with slavery, definitely as long as the original act of enslavement was limited to pagans or infidels, and the bondage itself could be envisioned as an instrument of converting them to your religion. For Jews, Muslims, and Christians, religious norms prohibited the forcible enslavement of members of the same faith. Ancient Jewish law limited the duration and conditions of Jewish servitude, and Muslim law expressively barred the enslavement of free Muslims. Christian practice was more flexible, definitely in the early Middle Ages, but tended to require by the late Middle Ages that slaves be of proven infidel or pagan origin. So all three of these monotheistic religions permitted the enslavement of outsiders, but usually on the assumption that such slavery was a benefit since it offered non-believers the chance of religious conversion, which was then the only available conception of moral progress. In the Christian sense, Christian baptism automatically emancipated the slave of any Jew or heretic. But church fathers held that baptism and religious conversion cannot in themselves bestow worldly freedom, because this could cause people to convert for the wrong reasons. So Judaism and other monotheistic religions believed in a divine mission under the guidance of a monotheistic God, and this informs a lot of their attitude towards slavery. Now, like their neighbors, of course, Hebrews kept slaves, and the Old Testament mentions several slaves by name, and even describes them as part of a family unit. Abraham has a wife named Sarah and a son named Isaac. Sarah has an Egyptian slave, Hagar, who's very important in Islamic history. And Abraham is the father of Hagar's son, Ishmael, or Ismail, also very important in Islamic history. Sarah sends Hagar and Ishmael off into the wilderness, fearing that Ishmael will share her son Isaac's inheritance. Their food is soon gone, and Hagar is a devoted mother who feels powerless to save her son, but God hears her cries and saves them. Slavery appears in the Old Testament in later generations. Joseph, Abraham's great-grandson, is sold by his jealous brothers into slavery in Egypt. When he's promoted into a high position in Pharaoh's court, he rescues the Egyptians from famine. Generations later, under a new Pharaoh, who doesn't remember Joseph, the Hebrews are enslaved by Egyptians. The Pharaoh decides that the Hebrews are becoming a threat to his power and orders every newborn Hebrew to be killed, 
the mother of one, Moses, places him in a basket in the Nile River. An Egyptian princess rescues him and raises him herself. When Moses grows up and sees how his people suffer as slaves, he's angered and God chooses him to approach Pharaoh with the words, let my people go. Pharaoh refuses. Finally, God frees the Hebrews, parts the waters of the Red Sea so they can begin their march toward the promised land. Now, this is a central story of the Bible, the Exodus. And later, when God gives the Israelites the Ten Commandments in the desert, he reminds them that they were slaves in Egypt. And so that's why they should remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, work six days and take one day off. And no one does work. You, your son or daughter, your male or female slave, your ox or your donkey, or any of your cattle or the stranger in your settlement. It says, remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God freed you from there. Over and over in the Bible, God reminds the Israelites they were once slaves. The prophets bring this up, and this is done that they may understand what it feels like to be oppressed and learn to treat the poor and downtrodden with kindness. And there are various provisions on how you treat slaves, what happens if you strike them, So, for example, when a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let him go free on account of his eye. In terms of how people got slaves, the law in the book of Deuteronomy considers capture through warfare as a legitimate form of enslavement, as long as Israelites were not among the victims. The Deuteronomic Code calls for the death penalty for the crime of kidnapping men to enslave them, but it was also possible to be born into slavery. If a male Israelite slave had been given a wife by his owner, then the wife and any children, which had resulted from the union, would remain the property of his former owner, according to the covenant code. There was also debt slavery, like that in other ancient Near Eastern cultures, or a form of debt bondage, which people would do due to a lack of economic security. Along with this, there was sexual and conjugal slavery. Sexual slavery, or being sold to be a wife, was common in the ancient world, And the taking of multiple wives is recorded many times in the Old Testament. An Israelite father could sell his unmarried daughter into servitude with the expectation that the master or son could eventually marry her. And the process of manumission is also detailed in the Old Testament. The code offers automatic manumission of male Israelite slaves after they have worked for six years. This excludes non-Israelite slaves and specifically excludes Israelite daughters who are sold into slavery by their fathers. Also, freed Israelite slaves should be given livestock, grain, and wine as a parting gift. But despite these commandments, Israelite slaves were kept longer than permitted, which compelled Yahweh to destroy the kingdom of Judah as punishment. Now, Israelites could volunteer for permanent enslavement, and they would do this by having an owl, A-W-L, driven through their ear in a doorpost by their master. So when you get down to it, slavery in the Old Testament There were many more escape hatches for Israelites, and also in the year of Jubilee, all Israelites were set free. So by that means, Israelites could enter slavery if economically necessary, but this escape hatch prevented a culture of Israelite slavery while foreigners could be enslaved for longer and a more permanent system of slavery could be set up for these foreigners. So that's an overview of Old Testament Israel, which thanks to the Old Testament, We simply have much more writings about this society than almost any other ancient society. That is, until we get to ancient Greece. Let's take a look at ancient Greece. And a good source to start with is Homer's The Iliad and The Odyssey. Yes, they're fictional accounts, but if you strip away the fighting between the gods and armies of over 100,000 that the ancient Greek economy at the time couldn't possibly support— There's a lot of good information in there because Homer can't help but take from the facts of life surrounding him. 
Now, these works are composed in 8 to 700 BC, and they take place in 1200 BC, but they can give us good historical snapshots of the time in which Homer wrote. At this time, chattel slaves, which are outsiders bought for cash, are around in abundance, along with the more numerous semi-free dependents who served local lords and were apparently treated similarly. It seems that servitude was a quasi-contractual relationship, with an expectation of rewards for the good servant. His texts emphasize the idea of a good servant and a good lord, but the rewards for the servant were precarious, and slavery was a fate that one definitely wanted to avoid. For example, after Odysseus regained control of his palace after 20 years away, he hanged 12 of his maids, apparently for sleeping with other noblemen. Now, the slave economy doesn't appear terribly important in Homer's time. It's not the backbone of the economy, but it was in other states. For example, the Spartans lived off the labor of the Helots, and this is around the classical period from 500 to 300 BC. Some historians think that the Helots were the original inhabitants of Laconia and Messenia, which were conquered by the Spartans, although they may have been losers in a struggle with Spartan society. They heavily outnumbered Spartans also, although we don't know how much. There's a traditional ratio of 7 to 1, but this could be exaggerated because that's just asking for a slave uprising. Athens did use chattel slaves. We don't know the process by which perhaps a third of the population of classical Athens were slaves. Uh, Moses Finley argues that slavery on such a scale was historically unusual because of the problems of controlling these slaves and the costs in acquiring and maintaining them. He thinks that the usual choice for most elites in history was to exploit internal labor sources, as in Sparta. Finley thinks that three preconditions have to be met before you can have mass chattel slavery and have a slave economy, like you see in ancient Greece and Rome. First, large, privately controlled farms. If a ruler can simply appropriate a farmer's surplus, or if farmers only produce at a subsistence level, there wouldn't be incentive to buy an extra laborer. Second, you have the development of market exchange. This helps to ensure a constant supply of slaves. That's why you don't see a lot of slavery in tribal society, because you don't have big market exchange. It also created opportunities to sell any surpluses they created and make it easier to provision them. Third, there was a lack of internal sources of labor. Finley believed that democratic structures helped protect ordinary Athenians from exploitation, most notably when debt bondage was abolished in 594 BC, and you couldn't sell yourself in order to repay debts. This forced larger landowners to import external labor to fulfill manpower needs. Now, other historians think that the abolition of debt bondage wasn't all that important. The development of democracy and of slavery were long processes that last several hundred years, and it wasn't just because of one edict that passed in one year. Some historians argue that rather than democracy helping to create slavery, slavery helped the development of democracy by allowing farmers more time to engage in politics. And there was also demand for chattel slaves before 594 BC, but the infrequency with which we see slave systems on the scale of Athens suggests that there are more economic factors required than just these three. But these three factors are still sort of the orthodox view of how you see slave economies develop. So what did Athens look like at the height of its slave economy? In the classical period, Athens was an urban center of a triangle of territory, approximately 40 miles on each side. This was called Attica. 
At its height between 450 and 300 BC, there's an estimated population of 150 to 250,000 with 50 to 100,000 slaves. But this is just a guess. Most slaves are thought to have come from the Balkans and from Anatolia, which is modern-day Turkey, across the Aegean Sea from Greece, but others were from Greek cities. The main way to acquire slaves was through the market, with many of these slaves kidnapped. There's little evidence that slaves were bred, but it could have happened. Okay, so all these slaves, what did they do? Well, many of them farmed, as we said, but many of them also worked in the silver mines of Athens. Mining was often a punishment because it was brutal work. And mining today is dangerous, so you can imagine how dangerous it was in the ancient world, with frequent collapses, dying by suffocation, working in total darkness. And we have slave rental agreements that involve the replacement of dead miners, dead slave miners, hinting that there was a low life expectancy in this trade. So most slaves were probably involved in mixed agricultural and domestic work, living alongside their masters. Slaves typically slept in barracks on the estate of their overseer. But few people had more than a dozen slaves, which is also the same thing you see in the antebellum south. Very rarely would someone have hundreds of slaves. The norm was ownership of just one or two slaves. And it's not like farm owners would have one gigantic plot of land like you see in a cornfield in the Midwest of the United States today. This is Greece. It's very hilly terrain. And the property of a wealthy person was probably dotted along the countryside rather than just one gigantic unit. Other slaves did artisanal work. Some lived separately from their masters, paying a form of rent. More educated slaves helped run businesses, including lending agencies, or acted as commercial agents. And there were some state-owned slaves who served as record keepers, who were civil servants, street cleaners, and even policemen. When you get to the highest level of slavery, they could have led fairly independent lives. Beyond the type of work you did, how well your life was as a slave could depend on your master's temperament. And we don't know how well Athenians treated their slaves because we don't have sources that discuss abuses committed against slaves like we do with Roman sources. This could suggest that there wasn't a lot of abuse committed against them optimistically, but maybe they just simply didn't heed slaves very much. And if there was abuse heaped against them, people really didn't care all that much. And slaves didn't have much legal protection. There was a right of asylum that existed, but we don't know what happened to slaves who used it. Killing one's own slave was considered an offense against the gods, but you could remove the stigma with a purification right. Killing someone else's slave was considered damage to another person's property. In terms of sexual abuse, slaves of both sexes were subject to abuse from their master. There weren't many taboos against a male citizen seeking extramarital sex, and slave prostitution was also an acceptable part of daily life. The only limitation was a distaste on the practice of castrating slaves, Greek slaves in particular. Slaves couldn't plead in courts, except in some commercial cases, and when slaves testified, they typically did so under torture. But we have little evidence of this form surviving court speeches. Manumission did happen. Athenians did free slaves, but we can't tell how often or why. Maybe these slaves were particularly loyal, and maybe an acquaintance provided a loan for a slave to buy their freedom. A slave being able to buy their freedom was more common for the artisans who had more income than an agricultural slave, but beyond that, all we can really do is speculate. No one really questions slavery in the Athenian context. Aristotle produced a justification of slavery, suggesting that 
at least some criticism of the institution existed, because why would you have to justify something if nobody questioned it? But this might be more directed at the Spartan system of slavery than Athenian chattel slavery. Aristotle's defense rested on four assumptions. Racism. Aristotle believed that Easterners were intelligent but soft, and Northerners were strong but stupid. Second, the belief that some people had to be controlled for their own good. Third, the perception that slaves looked and behaved slavishly, a warped reflection of the roles they were forced to perform. And fourth, somebody simply had to do the work. Aristotle knew that some slaves, especially Greek war captives, didn't fit his criteria of natural slaves, and most contemporary Athenians shared his core assumptions. But some writers did question the morality of enslaving fellow Greeks. In the mistreatment of a woman originally captured from a Greek town by Philip of Macedon in the 1340s, this provoked scandal in Athens, one of the very rare cases of outrage over the abuse of a slave, although this might have less to do with how a slave is being treated than a way to criticize Philip, who was very unpopular among many Greeks. All right, well, that's slavery in ancient Greece. For a final tour of the ancient world, let's look at slavery in Rome. Slavery was the backbone of the Roman economy up until its end, which is why many people think that as the institution of slavery dwindled in the Roman Empire, that's the principal reason why it fell apart. Won't get into that argument, but the very reason that argument is so viable shows you how important slavery was to Rome. Now, much like ancient Greece, slaves' life and their relative level of security and comfort varied widely. A favored slave of a wealthy patrician could live in relative comfort, a less fortunate laborer could literally be worked to death. Ancient Roman slaves were usually prisoners captured in war, but some were those who had been kidnapped in the Italian peninsula. These slaves were sold at a slave market, some naked, with a notice put around their neck, and anyone could purchase them. Once sold, they were the property of the new owner and worked for no compensation. A very wealthy Roman could have up to 400 slaves. Men and women were both sold as slaves, and some of the most expensive were young boys because you would get years of service out of them. Some slaves were well-educated, particularly those from Greece, and they would be used to teach the children of the household. Female slaves could be used as hairdressers, dressmakers, cooks, and servants for rich women. Others worked in small workshops making leather or silver goods or pots and pans. Unlike any society, they could also be used as concubines for wealthy men. Slaves who had the worst situation were likely those, like in Greece, who worked in the mines. They spent long hours underground in hot, cramped conditions and frequently killed in accidents. Slaves who worked on farms did digging and plowing and other agricultural work, bringing in the harvest. Some slaves were called public slaves. They worked for Rome itself. Their job was to build public works like roads and buildings, repair aqueducts, other public slaves worked as clerks and tax collectors for the city. Many did try to escape, even though they would be killed if the attempt was made. But this was difficult because there was nothing like the Underground Railroad where they would be helped along the way. And if you clearly spoke with a foreign accent or didn't know Latin, you'd be marked as a runaway slave. Probably among the most famous slaves was Spartacus, a famous ancient Roman, who did manage to escape and form a group of slaves who defeated the Roman army in battle. However, their success didn't last for long, as the army managed to stop more from joining Spartacus and kill those that had survived the battle. 
Now, here's the scope of slavery in Rome. The Roman Empire had approximately 50 to 100 million inhabitants at its height, 7 to 14 million of them in Italy. It was a much larger society than classical Athens, and slavery was on a much larger scale. Some estimates suggest that 30 to 40 percent of the population of Italy were slaves, and 10 to 15 percent of the entire empire. More recent research has revised these estimates downwards. Although one would expect Italy, home of the imperial elite, to have the highest proportion of slaves in the empire, followed by wealthy centers in the east, Romanized areas in the west, especially North Africa, and southern Spain and southern France. Slaves came from many different sources. There are those that I mentioned. They also came from the children of existing slaves. Free children left exposed to die by their parents out in the forest because infanticide was illegal, but simply leaving an infant to its fate in the forest was considered leaving it up to the will of the gods, or slaves could be found by individuals purchased or captured outside the empire. Some estimates suggest that at least 75% of Rome's slaves must have been bred because there wouldn't have been enough people outside the empire to supply this need, and it would have completely depopulated Rome's borderlands if there had to be this many slave raids. And it also would have been a probably high number of exposed children required from inside the empire. This is the best theory we have to understand where all these slaves came from, if indeed 10% or more of the empire's inhabitants were slaves. It implies that few female slaves of childbearing age were freed. The theory of the massive development of chattel slavery in Rome comes from Moses Finley and Keith Hopkins. Both stress the unavailability of indigenous labor. Roman peasants were vital to the army and had important political rights that discouraged them being directly economically exploited. Hopkins argued that the profits from the expansion of the empire flooded the hands of the elite, giving them the resources to buy peasant farms, which had been undermined by their owners' long absences on military service. The elite also used their wealth to buy slaves to work this land. The army and cities, whose populations grew as peasants left the land, also provided markets for the new slave-run estates. Let's look at the slave owners themselves. We don't know much about slave ownership among poor Romans. In order to be able to afford a slave, you had to be at the economic level where you could pay for several years of food for a family. To give you an idea of how wealthy the Roman elite was, it doesn't seem unusual to own hundreds of slaves. This consists of the richest few thousand Romans. Slaves did almost everything. Many were active in agriculture, domestic work, or urban trades, with mining less significant than in Athens. Some Roman authors, including Cato, Varro, and Columella, discuss slaves in agriculture. Farms may have had dozens of slaves, and they'd live in barracks with a slave overseer. Masters were probably absent for part or all of the year. The evidence we have for domestic slavery is biased towards the households of the very wealthy elite because these are the people who produce the sources that we know anything about this. And slaves engage in an extraordinary range of trades. They would run businesses and the masters would act as silent partners. And slaves were particularly prominent in the inscriptions put up by urban workers, suggesting pride in work done that was consciously opposed by slave masters who were anti-labor. We don't know how this labor was organized, but there is evidence of things like factory production of pottery, but business was probably much smaller than this typically. 
and many slaves and freemen could join trade and household-based social clubs known as collegia. Roman law attempted to protect slaves from some abuse by their masters from the first century AD onwards. Emperor Hadrian forbade the throwing of slaves to wild beasts in public entertainment without the permission of the magistrate. Killing a slave without just cause was to be punished as severely as killing someone else's slave. So therefore, the murder of a slave was not taken as seriously as that of a freeman. And excessive brutality was a tricky legal concept to define because fellow slave owners made that determination and death from quote-unquote justified whipping was never punished. So while we don't know how much legislation against brutal treatment of slaves was enforced, the very fact that it existed showed that there were norms of behavior on how you should react toward your slave. And much like the Greeks, there was no legal control on what a master might do sexually with his slaves, except for unsuccessful attempts to prevent the trade in castrated slaves. Before the Christian era, there was little discussion of what might constitute the limits of acceptable sexual behavior. Slave prostitution was widespread, and and a master could sleep with his female slave with no taboo. Any child produced was a slave, so you just add to your household. Widowers also sometimes took slave or ex-slave concubines. New offspring would not threaten the inheritance of a dead wife's children. Relationships between free women and slaves were not socially acceptable typically and could face legal sanction, but we don't know how this affected the lowest levels of society. And slave women were sometimes freed on the condition that they marry their ex-owners, but the highest levels of society prevented this practice. So there were customs definitely in place to protect slaves and free Romans. Okay, well, what about manumission? Securing your freedom in Rome seems to have been a result of an emotional bond with one's master or an economic exchange, even. These slaves would make use of the peculium. Peculium was a certain amount of property, such as land or buildings, given to a slave by a master for his management and use. The peculium was protected under Roman law and inaccessible by the owner. This was another tool slaves could use to purchase their freedom. The peculium consisted of money or goods that an owner allowed a slave. While it always remained the property of the owner, Romans had good reason not to take it away arbitrarily. The peculium allowed a form of limited liability insurance when slaves operated independently of their masters and business. And it was a crucial mechanism in labor as slaves saved money to buy luxuries including other slaves or their freedom. Ex-slaves in Rome had a degree of influence in at least three ways. First, they were given citizenship, though there were discussions about how much weight their vote should carry. Second, some were proverbially wealthy, helped by their experience as business agents, and possibly also by financial support and bequests from their patrons. And they had success in fields such as medicine and literature. Third, ex-slaves exercised influence in the imperial bureaucracy. Okay, well, what about slaves resisting their masters? Rebellions did occur. There was a slave rebellion in Sicily in the late 130s BC involving tens of thousands, again in 104 to 101 BC, and finally in Italy in 73 to 71 BC. These were in the countryside, and it required full Roman armies to defeat them. And this was after a few defeats the slaves issued to the Roman armies. And there were other ways slaves could resist their masters in nonviolent ways. Roman law indicates ways a slave could defraud or cause loss to a master. And the text mentions these so much suggests their commonness. 
Concerns about them running away appear often. Running away was difficult, there was no underground railroad, but the sheer size of the empire and lack of centralization and looseness of bureaucratic control and difficulties of differentiating slaves and free and the multicultural empire made it somewhat possible to run away. Laws from the 4th century AD onward indicate that free men might help fugitives, possibly in order to gain laborers. But overall, fleeing your master was very dangerous and quite difficult. Now, also in Rome, unlike Greece, there was much more of a discussion of the morality of slavery. Seneca, the Stoic philosopher, complained about the inhuman treatment of slaves. Other Stoics argued that men should be judged by their morality, not their legal status, and that masters addicted to luxury might be true slaves, not those who serve them. But Stoics didn't call for anything like abolition. They thought of slavery as a trouble in this world that had to be endured and not resisted for moral formation. And this is how early Christians also understood slavery. They told slaves that they should obey their masters. And as Rome Christianized from the 4th century onwards, it accepted slavery fully. However, there was more legislation protecting slaves and a changing attitude regarding sexual behavior and a more positive attitude toward manual work could have also affected their lot. Okay, so how did slavery end in the ancient world on such a large scale? At some point in the later Roman Empire, villa-based direct exploitation of agricultural slaves, in Italy at least, declined in favor of free enslaved tenant farming. This wasn't as much of an ideological shift as an economic shift. Slaves became increasingly like the rest of the rural poor as they were given a degree of autonomy and allowed to live in family units. We don't exactly know why this change happened. One suggestion is that traditional slave exploitation became uneconomic at some point after 100 AD. Also, arguments that the end of Roman expansion at that time made captives more costly, but this rests on the assumption that war was the main source of slaves and that breeding was uneconomic. And there's not clear evidence that increased supervision made slavery unprofitable. But there's some archaeological support that the export markets of slave-run farms were undermined by the development of non-slave production centers at other places in the empire. Another possibility is that slavery never actually declined. Slaves appear often in texts up to the end of the Western Empire in 476, and also in Byzantine legal codes in the 6th century. Even in Anglo-Saxon England, up to the conquest in 1066, Registries say that slaves could have been 10% or more of the population. But the move from a direct agricultural exploitation of slavery in Rome to the tenant system, to the feudal system in the medieval world, does require explanation. And this brings us back to the emphasis on the availability of exploitable indigenous free labor. Italian peasants initially had important roles as voters and soldiers. As the empire removed their voting rights and then recruited armies from outside Italy, increasing economic pressure could be placed on them, making it more profitable for the tenancy system and feudalism than directly supervised slaves, and the remaining slaves could simply be converted into tenants. And the decline in the market economy after the fall of the Roman Empire also removed a precondition for mass slavery. So the evolution of slavery into the medieval feudal system could partially be due to ideology of Stoicism, Christianity, but historians seem to think that it more had to do with the economic collapse of Rome and having a tenant system simply make more sense. 
That's all we're going to look at for slavery in the ancient world, but there's one last thing I want to look at in this episode. I mentioned earlier a universal definition of slavery as the social death of a person, that you no longer have honor or social standing in your society. Now, it's good for a theorist, but what did slaves themselves think? What did educated slaves themselves think? How did they grapple with the reality that they were the property of another person, but still uphold their own dignity and honor? Well, the ancient world gives us a treasure trove of sources from the slaves themselves. And there's really two periods in history where we have the most eloquent expressions from slaves. That's the ancient world from educated Greeks that were captured. And then when we get up into the period of the antebellum South in America, when you have writers like Frederick Douglass who were enslaved, but then afterwards we're able to obtain a significant degree of education and explain in very eloquent terms the inhumanity of slavery. And this was very important intellectual fuel for the abolitionist movement. Well, I want to look at the writings of one slave in particular, because he's a very profound philosopher, and his name was Epictetus. He was a Greek who was a slave and focused on how he can have agency and control in his life when legally he didn't have any. Aristotle said that slavery was a state of mind, and Epictetus strove to not let his slave status define him. Epictetus lived from 55 to 135 AD. He was born in Hierapolis, present-day Pamukkale in Turkey, as a slave in a wealthy household. Epaphroditus, his owner, gave him the permission to pursue liberal studies, and it's how Epictetus discovered philosophy, through the Stoic Musonius Rufus, who became his teacher and mentor. There's a story about Epictetus, quoted by the early Christian Origen, that when he was still a slave, he was tortured by his master, who twisted his leg. He endured the pain with complete composure, and he warned Epaphroditus that his leg would break. And when it did, he said, There, did I not tell you that it would break? From that time on, Epictetus was lame. And we don't know if this story is true or not. He could have simply had a condition like rheumatism. Well, at some point, Epictetus was manumitted, perhaps in his 30s or so. And in about 89 AD, along with other philosophers in Rome, he was banished by the emperor Domitian. He went to Nicopolis in northwestern Greece, where he opened his own school, which acquired a good reputation among Stoics and attracted many upper-class Romans, and he taught there until his death. Now, here is what Epictetus focused on. He talked about what is in our power. His manual of ethical advice, the Enchiridion, starts out with this line, some things are in our control and others not. For Epictetus, the only thing we can control, and therefore the only thing we should worry about, is our own judgment about what is good. If you cannot control your life situation, if you cannot control whether you're a slave or free, if you cannot control whether you'll become rich or poor, whether famine or starvation will happen to you, whether you could be killed by an army, do not worry and do not care. Only care about that which you can control and the only thing you can control is the judgment about what is good. If you desire freedom, health, sex, reputation, or money, you will inevitably be unhappy. If you want to avoid hardship, starvation, sickness, or poverty, you'll live in a constant state of anxiety. Yes, you want to avoid those things, but to be a Stoic means asking whether the things we worry about are outside of our control or not. And if they're outside of your control, be ready with the reaction, then it's none of my concern. 
And for a Stoic, any suffering you encounter, whether your leg being broken by a cruel master or any humiliations or losses you suffer, consider every setback an advantage, an opportunity for learning and glory. Because when difficulty comes your way, you should feel proud and excited, like what Epictetus says, a wrestler whom God, like a trainer, has paired with a tough young buck. So what Epictetus said is that to maintain our moral character is necessary and sufficient for happiness or eudaimonia. You have to understand what is in your power, and if we do not do this, our moral character will remain in a faulty condition because we'll remain convinced that such things as wealth and status are good, when they're really indifferent, you'll be troubled by frustrations and anxieties and subject to disturbing emotions that we do not want and cannot control. And this ultimately makes life unpleasant and unrewarding. So Epictetus remarks, this is the proper goal, to practice how to remove from one's life cries of alas and poor me and misfortune and disappointment. Epictetus said, no one is master of another's moral character. And in this alone lies good and evil. No one, therefore, can secure the good for me or involve me in evil, but I alone have authority over myself in these matters. Epictetus, he was a slave to no man in his moral character. He and he alone was master. While the influence of Epictetus can be seen in many instances, such as the writings of Emperor Marcus Aurelius, who mentions him in his meditations, And in the modern era, James Stockdale, Admiral Stockdale, who was the vice presidential candidate for Ross Perot in 1992, he was a prisoner of war in Vietnam for over seven years, and he credits Epictetus for providing him with a framework on how to endure the torture he was subjugated to. Stockdale was confined in leg irons, and he remembered that Epictetus had a disabled leg. And he remembered Epictetus' words that sickness is a hindrance to the body, but not to your ability to choose unless that is your choice. Lameness is a hindrance to the leg, but not to your ability to choose. Say this to yourself with regard to everything that happens, that you will see such obstacles as hindrances to something else, but not to yourself. When James Stockdale was a pilot in the Vietnam War, his plane was shot down in 1965, and here's what he said in a later speech about how he prepared himself mentally. After ejection, I whispered to myself, I'm leaving the world of technology and entering the world of Epictetus. As I ejected from that plane was the understanding that a Stoic always kept separate files in his mind for those things that are up to him and those things that are not. Another way of saying it is those things that are within his power and those things that are beyond his power. Still another way of saying it is those things that are within the grasp of his will, his free will, and those things that are beyond it. All in category B are external, beyond my control, ultimately dooming me to fear and anxiety if I covet them. All in category A are up to me, within my power, within my will, and properly subject for my total concern and involvement. They include my opinions, my aims, my aversions, my own grief, my own joy, my judgments, my attitudes about what is going on, my own good and evil. So Stockdale learned from Epictetus the slave that happiness came from differentiating what is and what is not within our control and working as hard to use what is within our control to obtain mastery of the self. So as you can see, slavery is not so clear-cut. It's a horrible institution that dehumanizes, but a slave was still a human that decided if he would become master of himself. Well, that's all for part one of this series on slavery. We're going to continue in the next episode with slavery in the Middle Ages, looking at Vikings, trade from Africa to Arabia, 
and the pre-Columbian slave economy in Africa. The next episode, we'll look at the capture of slaves in the Mediterranean that both Christians and Muslims did, Tripoli pirates and the Ottoman Empire. Then we'll look at the Atlantic slavery system and slavery in antebellum America. And finally, we'll wrap up the series by looking at abolition. If any of you would ever like me to dive deep into a topic like this, I'm always open to your suggestions. And you can send them to me by email at info at historyonthenet.com or leave me a voicemail at historyunplugpodcast.com. Thanks for listening to the History Unplugged podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show to get your daily dose of all things history-related from ancient Greece to the Cold War. You can do that by going to historyonthenet.com forward slash subscribe. Speaking of History on the Net, if you want to dive deeper, go to our site historyonthenet.com and there you'll find blog posts, book reviews, and all of our other podcast episodes. Plus, don't forget to rate and review this podcast so we can bring you the best daily history content possible. We'll see you next time at the History Unplugged podcast.